Distance Daddies. Welcome back to the seventh episode of Distance Daddies. Today we are joined by Ben Rosario, the founder, coach, and director of the pro team Hoka NAZ Elite out of Flagstaff, Arizona. We discuss how he got this group started, his coaching philosophy, how the group has changed with Alan Culpepper as the new head coach, and how he created the Marathon Project during the pandemic. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on Instagram at distance underscore daddies. And with that, let's get into it. Today we welcome Ben Rosario, the director of Hoka Naz Elite, the pro team out of Flagstaff, Arizona. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Oh, happy to join you guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, I guess to start, uh, how did Hoka Naz Elite start from the beginning and just what was your role in that? Sure. My wife and I started the team uh, from scratch uh, back in 2014. Uh, we had moved to Flagstaff in 2012. I had uh, co-owned running stores in St. Louis, Missouri called Big River Running Company with my good friend Matt Helbig from college. We owned those uh, together. We founded that store in 2006. Uh, <clears throat> I was the co-owner for six years. We had three locations by the time I left and we're doing very, very well. In fact, the stores are still doing very well in St. Louis. Uh, but I just wanted a new challenge, just something different. And I really didn't know what that was going to be. I, I moved out to Flagstaff with with my wife and our, our one-year-old daughter at that time just to get away. You know, I was pretty fried from the stores. It's a 24-7 uh, job and been doing it for six years. And so I was a little bit uh, burnt out. And at first, I was just uh, living out here, uh, getting to know people, doing a little marketing for McMillan Running Company. I knew Greg McMillan. Um from a ways back and he had the adidas mcmillan elite team out here so i was kind of watching uh him do his thing with that team and of course i had been part of the hansons brooks distance project in the early 2000s as, a, as an athlete myself for two years from 03 to 05. Uh, and when i was at the stores i had coached a lot of sub elite people uh took took a couple people to the olympic marathon trials took a, a 800 meter runner to the semifinals of the olympic trials in 2012. So I had coached, I had been a event director, obviously store owner, um, coached the youth team in St. Louis uh, through the store, coached the adult training team. So I kind of coached people at all levels. And that was something that I really enjoyed. And then in 2013, I started coaching a couple of people here in Flagstaff. Um, my role with Greg was not, uh, uh, it didn't have anything to do with the McMillan elite team, but of course I was you know, getting to know those folks uh, yeah. just as uh, as you would if you're around them. And the folks I started coaching in 13 were, were outside of that team, but uh, we started having some success. And then, unfortunately, the McMillan Elite team dissolved at the end of 2013. So there were a number of athletes in town, in addition to the athletes that I was already coaching, that liked that idea of a group, uh, liked the group structure, having teammates, having a coach, um, and so we, we sort of absorbed 
uh, Stephanie Bruce, Ben Bruce, Scott Smith, Kellen Taylor, Amy Van Alstyne, they had all been on McMillan Elite. And, um, you know, it was kind of at that time, organically, at the end of 13, uh, that we decided, hey, this is what we'll do now, my wife and I, uh, let's let's treat this as a business, let's uh, start the team, but let's understand that we have to build a brand around the team, we have to make stars out of these athletes, we have to have a social media presence, we have to tell stories, so that we can be valuable to potential sponsors. And so we spent that entire year, 2014, you know, we had built the website before the team started, we launched that, we launched our social media channels, but of course, performance is still number one because you have to have the platform from which to tell stories. And that platform comes from performances. And so in that very first year, Amy Van Alstyne won the national title in cross country. Kellen Taylor won the national title at, at 25K. Uh, Matt Yano ran a 101 half marathon. So we were having a lot of high level performances. And then by the end of 14, after sending out a lot of different pitch decks and working with Josh Cox, a good friend of mine who, who's an agent. Uh, we, we had three different shoe companies that were interested in sponsoring our group. And fortunately for us, at the beginning of 15, Kellen Taylor ran a 228 marathon, which was her debut. And at the time, the sixth fastest debut ever for the U.S. on the female side. And so that that combined with the fact that we had multiple companies looking at us gave us the leverage we needed to really get this thing done and and it was at that time in in february of 2015 that we signed with hoka uh, and they became our title sponsor and we've been with them ever since so that was really how the group got going gotcha you mentioned um you went about like really focused on telling the athlete stories and that was helpful in, in attracting sponsors and um with a lot of the talk lately about like growing the sport just in general um and there's been uh like a a focus on getting these athletes to tell the stories and getting it out there so more of the american public cares about it so like how did you guys what was your kind of strategy behind telling the athletes stories and and making it more marketable it was it was just about making them relatable and, and having them be their self themselves, but just, just amplifying that, that, um, that story for each of them individually, as well as collectively, um, as a team. And so, you know, over the years, things like Steph having children and going through that and being her being willing to be open about that and, and share the ups and downs of pregnancy, labor, postpartum issues that so many women have to deal with but nobody seems to want to talk about and she really opened a huge door there uh for for women of all ability levels who run and who want to get back to running after giving birth and she sort of became a a role model and a um kind of a uh, she sort of became the Pied Piper you know for for all these women who wanted to figure out how to do that um, and they, they they really didn't have anybody to go to so she she became a, a huge part of their lives and and she took that responsibility very seriously and and was able to expand that into what is now just she's a huge brand the Stephanie Bruce brand is huge mm-hmm. um, and it's powerful and it's meaningful to a lot of people uh, we we more recently used that same model again with Alephine, uh Tulia Mook when she uh, chose to um, 
chose to have a, a baby or, or start a family after making the Olympic team in, in 2020. And then of course the Olympics got pushed back. So in the interim, she, she had a baby and she shared that journey. Um, you know, one of our very first athletes, Matt Yano, um, came out, uh, in, in the first year that we were uh, a team. And, uh, that was huge for him to do that and be an openly gay athlete, uh, when, you know, again, this is only eight, eight years ago, but that was still, you know, quite uncommon. And so that was a big deal. Um, you know, we've told all kinds of great stories over the years and there's those big stories like those examples. And then there's just the day to day, right. Just, just hanging out, just fun stuff. This workout went well, this workout didn't go well. This race was awesome. This race sucked. Um, races suck sometimes, you know, and it's okay <laughs> yeah. to admit that and share that. And I think people have really responded to the authenticity uh, that we've been able to bring to the table since the very beginning. Yeah, for sure. Was um was the book you you co-wrote with Scott was that part of that effort to kind of just um get the persona out there and make it more relatable or was that just a, a separate kind of project? So you're referring to Inside a Marathon, the, yes, the book that uh -huh. Scott Falwell and I wrote about his his build up to the 2018 New York City Marathon and then there's a there's a extra chapter in there about his 2019 Boston Marathon. Um, I, I don't know. I think it was just uh, I don't think it was super calculated the way I remember it. I think it was just an idea that the two of us had, but it was very much in conjunction with everything that we've just been talking about for the last couple of minutes. It was just it seemed very normal to us to share the journey of that build. And the book was just a unique way to do it. Mm -hmm. I, that's the best way to describe it. And, and uh, you know, I loved everything about creating that book and it was a really uh, meaningful time for Scott and I, and I'm glad that we were able to share it and it lives on. I just got a email the other day from somebody, this is no joke. I'm just, I'm not making this up. He said it was his favorite, he's been reading running books for decades, he said, and it's his favorite running book of all time. So that was pretty, uh, pretty cool, pretty meaningful to me. And um, yeah, you know, that was a great time in, in our lives, Scott and I. Yeah, I just read that uh, like last year, I think, and it was definitely cool, like how relatable it was and um, to see just both of the different mindsets, like the coach and the runner and um, I definitely like the stuff you've been talking about the last few minutes, I could see coming out of that book. So that's why I was curious. Yeah, and, and you know, the cool thing about that book, too, is and this is what we've preached for so long now, just be yourself. You know, mm. Scott's kind of an introvert. He's kind of a he's kind of got like a dry, witty sort of sense of humor. And that's how he wrote the book. You know, he just wrote it in his own language, in his own voice. And I wrote my sections in my voice. And I think that's why the book worked because it wasn't us trying to uh, write down what we thought people wanted to hear. We were just writing what we were feeling uh, each and every week as that build went on. Yeah. What's been your, just as a coach, your like coaching and training philosophy? Well, my coaching philosophy uh, going back many, many, many years is just to, um, I think, maximize um, where an athlete can make the most gains, you know, and for distance runners, for the type of people that I was always good working with, uh, you know, the aerobic types, it, it was it was really uh, maximizing that threshold kind of work really being good at running fast and relaxed, um, taking a rhythm that you can run a lot of volume at and running a lot 
at that specific effort level. So, uh, you know, things that were really key in, in our training at, at NAZ Elite over the last um, eight years or so were high volume threshold sessions like 20 times one kilometer, 10 times one mile, even 15 times one mile with very short rest, um, you know, really long steady state efforts, 16 miles at marathon effort, um, obviously long runs, and then sprinkling in all the time the other zones. And so mm -hmm. touching all the zones all the time, but focusing on the zones where you could make the biggest gains. And so we touched on speed through hills and hill sprints and the weight room and um, strides and drills and form work and uh, tried to be really athletic. Uh, I, th I think that's certainly a part of a part of my philosophy. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, we had a lot of success. And, and my, my goal during my tenure as head coach was to try to get uh, a group of athletes that were really similar physiologically so that the things we were doing and the things that I really felt like I understood very well would suit them. Uh, that way we're doing them, um, uh, a service by providing them with teammates that are like-minded, but also physiologically similar, a coach that fits their physiology, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right. Creating a true group that could play off of one another. Now, as we've expanded, and I know we're going to get into that and we we've brought on Alan Culpepper as our new head coach. I think he's got a bit of a wider Delta. I think being someone who was so good from the 1500 meters all the way to the marathon himself, I think he is really um, a little more comfortable with coaching a wider variety of athletes, people who do have that mm -hmm. classic like 1500 meter to 5000 meter ability. Um, and that's their bread and butter. And they respond to that type of specific work. Uh, he loves working with those type of people. At the same time, he's very comfortable working with the aerobic uh, types that we've always uh, had success with here. So now we've got, I think, the best of all worlds going. And you'll see that as our roster continues to um to develop over these next couple of years, I think you'll see us with a team that is much more well-rounded from 1500 all the way to the marathon. Yeah. Just developing that uh, training philosophy that you found that worked so well, was that just through like your time with the Hanson Brooks project? Um, and you said coaching those initial athletes uh, while you were still like working with the running store, or was it more just kind of like trial and error? Or how did you learn kind of what would work best uh, for these athletes? Yeah, a little bit of all of the above, you know, um, you're, of course, as you <clears throat> grow up in, in the running world, you, you absorb all sorts of information and it's your job to assess that information, process it. And then on the other side, <laughs> once you put it all together, sort of weeding out the things you don't like, um, pushing forward with the things you really do like, all of a sudden you sort of have your own philosophy and it's, this organic process that takes place over a number of years going all the way back in my case to high school, right. And, and the things my high school coach believed in. Uh, and of course, some of those things is I still believe in today. Other, other things I realize are now outdated, you know, and we, yeah. we realize there's a better, th better way to do things. And uh, so you, it's constantly changing. Uh, you know, you're making tweaks all the time, but uh, you know, I think, yes, of course, I took a lot from Keith and Kevin. They remain uh, friends of mine and mentors of mine. Um, I think I learned some things from Greg McMillan, who I worked with for a little bit as, as my coach, uh, learned from friends of mine, of course, books, articles, et cetera. But a lot of it just anecdotal stuff, you know, uh, things that I saw work for me, for my teammates over the years, for 
folks that I ran with in St. Louis. And you just start building this uh, library, I suppose, of workouts that you know work, you know, you know, they mean this or they mean that. And you, you know when to plug them in, you know when to um, dial things back. It, 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 a lot of it, is, at least for me anyway, a lot of it was much more art than science. It mm-hmm. was understanding people, what makes them tick, um, and, and just uh, just trying to push the right buttons at the right time so that people could be ready on the biggest days. I really didn't care much about anything except the biggest days. I wanted us to be ready at the Olympic trials. I wanted us to be ready at the New York City Marathon, Boston Marathon, uh, whatever the big, big events were. That's that's what I cared about. That's still what I care about. Yeah. How big of a role do you think Flagstaff played into that just with its culture, its environment? I mean, you have the elevation and altitude to help with that aerobic building as well well i said i'm more art than science but i'm not uh, stupid <laughs> I, I i know i understand the science and i think you have to have an understanding a solid understanding of the science and so there's no question that living at seven thousand feet is absolutely ideal for producing extra red blood cells uh, increasing your oxygen carrying capacity so that you can go down to sea level and, and have an advantage right um, over the years i think um I understood more and more and more and more about how to um, how to implement high-low training. So doing a lot of work up here in Flagstaff, but then going down for certain sessions to Camp Verde, 3,100 3, feet, Sedona, 4,500 feet, even all the way down to Phoenix uh, near near sea level uh, if, if needed at times. And so uh, to answer your question, uh, it, it's played a huge role and continues to play a huge role. In my opinion, Flagstaff is the best place to train in the world, certainly in the United States, if not the world, because not only are we at that ideal elevation in terms of what's going on inside your body, uh, in terms of the red blood cells, the the increased hemoglobin count, the increased hermat- hematocrit, um, but the... Um, the ability to go down and do faster sessions, that is not an option at most other altitude uh, cities. Uh, yeah. I mean, we can be in one hour door to door. We can be at 3,100 feet doing a workout. That's, that's a, that's a huge advantage. And so, uh, yeah, I think Flagstaff's been great. And then you mentioned the community and it's a great community. It's a good size, 70, 80,000 people. It's not too big and too distracting. Uh, but it's not so small that you go stir crazy either. It's a tourist town. There's lots of good restaurants. Um, you, you feel like you're training in a mountain town, but you can go have a nice meal. You can go out and have a burger and a beer with your friends, um, and and go home at nine o'clock, you know, and, 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 and feel like you got away for a second, you know? And so for, for the athlete, I think it's a great town to live in. Yeah. How much time does it take a new athlete moving there just to adjust to that and really, I guess, do well at that uh, level and elevation? It depends. I mean, it really only takes three or four weeks for the body to um, produce the necessary adaptations, but depends on what you do in those three or four weeks, right? Do you take things gradually? Are you careful? Are you increasing your hydration? Are you taking iron if necessary? Are you getting blood tests every week to see how the progress is going? Are you, um, are you making sure that you're training appropriately uh, for someone who isn't used to altitude? All these things come into play because look, 
after three or four weeks, if you came out here and tried to hit the ground running and you're doing the hardest workouts you've ever done and the most mileage you've ever done, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be toast at the end of three or four weeks. And it's going to take you a long time to climb out, climb out of that hole. So um, if you do things properly and, and you're, you know, an aerobic type athlete, uh, distance runner type athlete, I, I think you can, you can come around in a month or so, but uh, you know, there is some level of individuality to it for sure. Do you guys typically do those weekly blood tests with any like new athlete that comes on? Yeah, we try to get a blood test when they arrive and then not necessarily weekly, but um, for sure a couple weeks in three, uh, no more than three or four weeks in, we need to take another one uh, so that we can make sure the adaptations are taking place. Because if they're not, then we've got to try to assess why that is. Um, because look, if, if, if those adaptations don't happen, then there's no point to being at altitude. So we got to make sure they're, they're happening. Mm-hmm. Now that you have moved from coach to more of that director role, uh, I guess, what are your goals for Nazali and what do you feel like you can focus on more as a director, uh, while having Alan do more of the coaching side? Yeah, look, very simply, we want to be the best group in the country, if not the world. Um, and that's very possible. Um, you know, if you look at, if you wanted to call Bowerman the best group in the country, you certainly could do that. And I wouldn't argue with you. Uh, but it's not like they're that old, <laughs> you know, they started in only a few years before we did, um, shoot. If you wanted to call on athletics club, the best club in the country right now, I, I wouldn't necessarily argue with you. And they only started a couple of years ago. It can happen very quickly with the right funding and the right commitment. Hoka is giving us the funding. Um, that's why we have the ability to hire Alan and, and Jenna Reed and our assistant coach and now pay me in, in, the, in the director role. So my job in this role is to now give Alan and Jenna and the athletes everything that they need to produce the performances at the very highest level that then will give us the platform to share our stories in an even bigger and better way than we ever have before. Uh, and, and there are a variety of big picture items that I'm already working on that will uh, take us to that level, I believe. Uh, things like our own performance center with our own weight room and our own office space and our own uh, uh, space for hurdle mobility work and, and things like that, right? That, you know, we've been going to somewhere for, for the last eight years for that. We, we want our own space, right? We're a professional team. We should have our own space. Mm-hmm. Um, things like additional sponsors beyond Hoka, much more like the cycling model. Uh, why in this sport do we have to only have a shoe sponsor and that's it? Well, we already have had and have other sponsors like Picky Bars, like Final Surge, like Rudy Project Sunglasses. These are cash sponsors who help our general fund. But why can't we go outside of that into non-endemic sponsors? Why can't we have a car company or a hotel or a um, financial institution uh, as, as a secondary sponsor right below Hoka, right? Why can't we take our budget from what it is now and double it or triple it? We can do those things, but I need time (laughs) and coaching takes a lot of time. It's a lot of time um, and it's a lot of effort and it's a lot of emotional energy because you're so invested in the athletes and you're so invested in each and every workout in each and every race. You know, a distance runner might run, especially a long distance runner might only run five, 10, 12 races a year. But if you multiply that by 16 athletes, that's a lot of races and the yeah. coach feels like he or she is running each and every one of those. So it's an incredible emotional drain. And uh, though I'll miss some of those highs, uh, I don't know that I'll miss the lows so much. And, uh, and I'll be, um, I think I'll be a lot more even keeled uh, in my role as director 
Uh, although I think I was an even keeled coach, but I'll be really able to stay uh, steady and keep moving forward. Um, you, you do get fried sometimes at the end of these big segments uh, when you're coaching these athletes to these uh, huge um, accomplishments. And so uh, it'll be nice as director to just boom, 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 forward, forward, forward. Yeah. When you were picking a replacement coach, why Alan? It was a long process. You know, it started in the summer of 2021. So last year, uh, last summer during that recruiting cycle, Mike McManus, the director of global sports marketing for Hoka, was sitting in, uh, we have a small office downtown right now. Again, I, I want a much bigger space, but uh, we have a small office downtown. He was in my office and he was talking about some athletes that were really 1500 meter, 5,000 meter types. And I said, look, those are all great athletes, but that's not really what we do here. And that's not really what I'm comfortable with as a coach. If you want those athletes on our team, which makes sense for Hoka because our team is such a powerful brand now. And we have such a machine going in terms of our ability to tell those stories, to push athlete stories out there, et cetera. It makes sense that they would want those athletes under our umbrella. But I said, look, I, we would have to have another coach. And he just paused and said, um, we could do that. <laughs> so that's that's when that process got started. Now, in the fall, I would tell you I had a, a mindset that at that time that we really needed a, co a coach from the college ranks that was successful in the collegiate ranks because I felt like he or she would really need to speak that language of the 22 year old coming right out of school. Um, I felt like that person would need big time credentials at 1500 meters, steeplechase, 5000. Um, and that I would continue working mostly with the marathoners. But after not really getting to where we needed to get to with a couple of college coaches that we talked to in the fall, um, around Christmas time, we revisited one of the very first people we thought of, which was Alan Culpepper. Now, at the time, Alan didn't fit that criteria because he hadn't coached at the college level. Um, and we didn't know if he could speak to or uh, build relationships with that young athlete coming right out of school. But he took the job at UTEP, University of Texas, El Paso, uh, that fall. And so that entire fall, he had been in the collegiate system and done a really good job. Some of the turnarounds he he made individually on that team were incredible, taking guys from 28-minute 8Ks to 24-minute 8Ks, just incredible stuff. And, uh, of course, we knew him. We knew he was a great guy. We knew he understood the business. We knew he'd coached himself his whole his whole career, and we knew he'd coached his son to a four minute mile in high school. So we we knew that he was a real candidate if we could be sure that he could speak to that younger athlete. And once he got through that first semester at UTEP with flying colors, uh, and yet when we talked to him in the winter, we realized that he really would rather be at the pro level. It started to take shape that okay, maybe this is the guy. Now to be fair. We still weren't sure. We still talked to a lot of people in the early winter, into the springtime, um, brought brought a couple different people in to Flagstaff to visit. But when we brought Alan in, I remember sitting down with him for a couple of hours at dinner, and it felt like 15 minutes. I mean, his approach to training, his approach to relationship building, his, his approach to building like a collective individualism sort of uh, idea where, hey, he was going to coach each individual and yet have them feel a part of the team. I was like, yes, this is what we've been doing for years now. So you fit, you know, you're not coming in here and changing our whole identity. 
you're simply bringing a little bit more knowledge, a couple extra layers here and there. He's a little more sciencey than I, I was, a little bit more passionate about the track than I was. And so he was, he was just checking every single box. And so I guess, long story short, it actually wasn't that hard of a decision. Once his visit was done and the athletes met him, we knew he was the guy. Yeah, I think I think the culture piece, you know, is going to take time. But luckily, we have a very good culture. Um, he's slowly putting his stamp on things. I think I was a person who really liked the team to meet every single day. I liked a lot of structure. I think he's providing a little bit more autonomy for the group, a little bit more on your own running so that they can, uh, you know, run at the pace they feel comfortable, whatever they need for that day, right, individually on some of the easy runs, while still meeting quite often, just not as often. He also, I think, um, uh, is a little, like I said a second ago, a little more sciencey. He's introduced some lactate threshold testing, things that I didn't didn't do. And um, and then I think, you know, just workout-wise, just little, little, little differences here and there. So it's not, nothing I would say crazy. Um, I don't think he would have come here if he felt like we needed wholesale changes. Um, I think that's one of the things he liked, that it was basically set up on a tee for him, ready to go. Um, and so it's been pretty smooth. It's been really been pretty smooth. Um, I think he's to the point now where he's almost writing workouts for everybody. We didn't want to throw everybody at him right away, especially the people who are kind of crushing it, especially at the marathon. They don't really need big changes. So it's more like he's kind of watching the marathoners train and kind of learning that system, learning why we've been so successful there. And then of course he'll make his little tweaks, but, um, but he. Hey, Katie Wasserman. I mean, the list goes on and on, but uh, yeah, he's, he's fully in control and he's, he's fully the head coach. So it, it, it honestly has happened even quicker than maybe I would have expected. It's been awesome. Yeah. How has Hoka helped you guys just to, develop as the group um outside of just like financial backing um because i know i'd say probably five years ago like i had heard of hoka but they were pretty small like getting into the market and now like i would say at least a third of the people that i train with myself included are wearing hokas so just like a huge increase in just brand development uh so how has that just helped you guys out yeah, I think it's been a very symbiotic relationship. Their brand and and our brand are, are you know, really, if you think about it, we're we're both in our infancy. <laughs> you know, we're we're in our ninth year. They're they're they started basically in 2010. So what they're in their 12th year. I mean, it's 12th, 13th year. It's 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 two companies or two entities, I should say, that are on an upward trajectory together. And we have very similar missions, very similar philosophies. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that they've done really well for us, in addition to the financial side, as you mentioned, is they've used us, right? So they didn't just cut us a check and leave us be. Um, I talk to their marketing department all the time. I talk to Mike McManus, their, the global sports marketing director, all the time. I talked to him an hour ago. Um they have sent film crews here to create really nice videos, really high level world-class videos about our athletes. Uh, they have used us in 
various grassroots campaigns. They've used us at big city marathons. They they flew the entire Hoka uh, staff, all of the employees out to Atlanta during the Olympic trials marathon weekend to watch our athletes compete. And then they stuck around and had their sales conference or their, their sales meeting in Atlanta just so they could be a part of that trials experience. So we're, we're very awesome. much a part of the DNA of that brand because we were on board so early and it feels really good. It feels really good to be loved and to be wanted and needed. And um, we feel that responsibility to, to raise awareness for Hoka. That's our number one job. Yeah. How did that work? Because uh, I know there's a couple Hoka athletes, but uh, such as Luis Grijalva and Rachel Snyder, who also trained in Flagstaff, but they're not a part of your group. So is that just uh, kind of a split off from Hoka or like how did that start? Do you know? Well, that's just like anything. Look, <laughs> I mean, Hoka is a billion dollar plus company. They're not going to put every athlete under yeah. its <laughs> umbrella. I mean, uh, I, I don't think we'd want that, you know, honestly. Um I mean, we think that eventually we can have up to 30 athletes, but look, man, when they signed Luis and Rachel, we weren't ready for that. Um, I wasn't uh, the right coach for them. And, and our group from a roster perspective at that time, a year ago, wasn't right for them. Uh, now in the future, absolutely we'll be right for those types of athletes. And I think you'll see uh, coming up here quite soon with a couple of the people that we're about to sign that, uh, that the, the roster is changing. Uh, it already, you already see that with Wesley Kip too. And, and, um, uh, some some of the athletes we've signed very recently but uh but there's more of those athletes to come and now we will be able to handle that so it's just it's just a process of making sure that hoka gets the athletes they want and then puts them in the place that they need to be and uh mm. increasingly moving forward uh i think that will be naz elite yeah uh, i was just going to ask was uh how much are you guys going to be expanding just in these next like year or two uh, well, you know, this year's recruiting class started with Wesley, who we signed in April, and then we'll have one, two, three, four, I think four more athletes uh, that will be signed this summer. So you'll mm -hmm. see those announcements coming out soon. That will bring us to, oh my gosh, uh, you're going to make me do some math here off the top <laughs> of my head. Uh, I think that'll bring us to 16 or 17 athletes total. And okay. so then after next year's recruiting class, we'll probably up, be up to 20. Um, and then you're starting to sniff getting all the way to 30, which would be the ultimate goal. So now there's a lot of time between now and then we need to make sure we focus on the athletes that we have and uh, give them the attention they need. But with a, with a head coach and assistant coach, both being full-time, that's all they do is coach the athletes. They don't have any other responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And then with me as director, but serving as a coach, as a coach when needed, right. And in the cases where I'm needed, we really have a three person coaching staff. It's pretty darn good uh, yeah. for the pro level. It's not the case uh, with most groups. And so uh, we, we feel confident about our ability to handle the 16 or 17 athletes we're, we're going to have come the end of this recruiting cycle. And then we feel confident, you know, that after next recruiting cycle, if we're up to 20, we, we feel very confident in our ability to handle that. Now, after that, would we need even more staff? Maybe. Uh, and, and we'll uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier uh, Josh Cox. So how did you and him start the idea for the marathon project? Yeah, yeah. So Josh is a friend of mine. He's uh, We've worked together on a lot of things over the years. He did broker that very first deal we had with Hoka um, and the second deal as well. Uh, we, we brokered the last deal with Hoka ourselves. Uh, our board of directors did that one. Um, 
but uh, but Josh is the agent for many of the athletes on the team. And we're always just talking about uh, ways to grow the sport, ways to increase um, eyeballs. And when the pandemic hit, uh, it was rough, man, uh, for me. I mean, this is my whole life. This is my passion. And it was really difficult to um, look at a summer with no Olympic trials, no Olympics. Um, and so we, we worked on a small project together that summer of 2020 in St. George, Utah, where we tried to find a drivable place for all these altitude-based athletes in Flagstaff, Colorado, Utah, to come together and run a 5,000-meter race on the track. And we had a blast putting that on. And I think not too long thereafter, we, 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 we said, well, we have to do a marathon because there's not going to be any fall marathons. And that's crazy for these athletes to, to go almost a full year with no opportunity to make money, no opportunity to perform. And I mean, these are entertainers, right? In a way, <laughs> they're yeah. performers and they, they, they weren't getting a chance to perform. And so um, that's really where it started. And we, we, we always wanted a flat course, criterium style course that could be really good for TV because we knew it was going to be a made for TV event uh, or, or webcast TV, whatever. Um, we knew that, uh, you know, we probably wouldn't be able to have any fans. And so uh, we looked at racetracks, uh, Formula One tracks, all kinds of different things. And we thought about weather. So we were focusing on Arizona and California. And once we found the, the, the Wild Horse Pass location, which we ended up choosing, I knew that that was the spot. I went down there and, and checked it out myself, rode around on the golf course, uh, golf cart on the course. And I said, I called Josh. I said, this is the place we've got to do it. And uh, so then we, then we set about trying to find a race management company to work with. We ended up choosing big river race management, my old race management company with my old business partner, Matt Helbig. So coming all the way back to the top there. And yeah. uh, Matt was our third partner on the project. And we took, uh, we took on the risk financially, Matt and Josh and I personally, and um, we did it for the sport and it ended up being totally uh, awesome. <laughs> it was a huge <laughs> success in every way. And uh, really one of the most, um, one of the most exciting events I've ever been a part of. And probably uh, the event that I'm most proud of uh, looking back at all the different things I've done over the years. Yeah. How was the logistics of setting that up, getting like athletes from all over, making sure they were, covid safe to race against each other and all of that i mean getting the athletes actually wasn't that hard because there were no other options yeah <laughs> so uh that wasn't that difficult actually the difficult part was turning people away because we just had a very hard number we're like look we're not going to have more than 100 athletes we just can't do it you know with the covid restrictions and with the how would you say we had to think about the perception as well it was mm -hmm. a very tense time in, in the united states and in the world and we just didn't feel it was going to be right to have 300 people out there. Um, and so, you know, I had to turn some really good runners away and that was not fun. I don't like telling people no, but at the same time we had to do uh, what, what we felt was right. Um, so getting the athletes wasn't that hard uh, coming up with the COVID restrictions. I mean, it was just a matter of talking to medical professionals and, and doing the very, very best we could. And um, you know, I think part of it was trying to get the athletes to feel like, Hey, you're in this with us. We're in this with you. This is something we're doing together. It's not Matt, Josh, and Ben. It's yeah. all 103 of us, right? All of you guys and us working together to make sure we all stay safe. We put on a great show for the fans and we give you the opportunity to run really fast, get your shoe company bonuses, 
get your end of year bonuses, get your contracts renewed. Josh, from the agent perspective, that was his big driving force was, hey, we have to give these opportunities to the athletes or this opportunity to the athletes so that they can keep making a living. And uh, I think my my motivation was a little bit of that, a little bit of just selfishness, wanting my athletes to have an opportunity uh, to perform. And then a little bit for the the good of the sport, right? Giving the, giving the fans something to get excited about in a time where there really was nothing. Yeah. You had mentioned looking at Formula One tracks. And I know some people have suggested on, not even during COVID times, but just in general, on doing races through those um, as a way to charge like fees for spectators, to create more excitement, uh, just to like grow the sport. Uh, were there any like cons that you saw using that type of course? Well, the only con is that if you wanted to create revenue by having a mass participation race, you couldn't have it on that course mm-hmm. because there's too great a discrepancy between the top runners and the slowest runners. And so you can't have a mass participation marathon anyway on a, on a looped course like that. And so that would be the biggest con. But other than that, I see mostly pros. Uh, I mean, that that race was going back to it and picturing it in my mind and imagining that being the course where, let's say, the Olympic trials were held. Mm-hmm. It would have been so loud. It would have been deafening, absolutely deafening. If you had taken the 250,000 people that were in Atlanta and put them in that small area, there wouldn't have been one even crack of the course that wasn't lined with a spectator and it would have looked awesome on TV and it would have been incredible for the athletes. And I think that much like a formula one race or a NASCAR race uh, where they're doing lap after lap after lap so that the spectators can see the entire race, everything that is a great model for a marathon for a professional marathon. I think now I don't think it's the only model, because I think New York City Marathon, Boston Marathon, that's great. You know, you get to be on the same course as the pros and the whole city comes out and there's tradition and that's great. But I think for an Olympic trials type marathon or an Olympic marathon like or the world champs like you just saw in Eugene, yeah. I think a criterium course is absolutely the way to go. And, and the more isolated, the better, because quickly to your point, Wild Horse Pass, for example, where we held the marathon project. Now, look, it would cost some money, but you could fence off the entire area. You could fence it off like you do for a music festival, let's say, um, where to get in and spectate the race, you have to come through the gates, right? And you have to pay. And you could do that. And people would pay. Um, I mean, you know, it's an incredible event. People pay for concerts. They pay for basketball games. They pay to go to the World Championships in Eugene, as you see this week. The stadium looks really full. I know it got a lot of uh, flack for the U.S. Championship attendance, but that was because Worlds were coming up. I I think you see that now. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I I love the idea. Make it happen, Kyle. (laughs) I'll do my best. Yeah, I know. Oh, go ahead. Do you think something like that, like, is eventually going to be the future of the trials, just with the kind of numbers of it getting smaller as, as the standards get more strict? Or no, I don't think so. That? I don't think so because right now the way the bid process is set up, the all of the financial responsibility falls on the LOC, the local organizing committee, 
And the only revenue stream for that local organizing committee is really a mass participation race the next day. So I think you're going to continue to see the model that you've seen the last several cycles where uh, the host is a already established event that has its own mass participation race that will be held on Sunday and the trials will be held the day before. Now, the, day, the courses they've been creating are criterium courses. So we've got part of the solution, right? And that's good and that's cool and that's fun and that's good for spectators. But we don't have that final piece, which is isolation, charge to get in, uh, make it a little bit more intimate so that it's louder and a bit more intense um, as opposed to being spread out over um, a huge downtown area. Yeah, because I know I've heard that that seems to be a big con for cities wanting to host the marathon trials uh, was just they feel like they can't recuperate those costs uh, when they're not charging spectators if they don't have that mass event, like you said, accompanying it. Well, correct. And 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 you got to remember that that mass participation event is what they have anyway. So they're not really recuperating costs because that's that's what sustains them annually anyway. So, so, you know, it's a really flawed system, really, really flawed. And we need some major changes to it. And uh, I don't think those changes have come this year. Um, and I don't ter- I don't really put all that much blame on USATF uh, for, for, for this particular cycle, because with the pandemic and the Olympics getting pushed back, it's really been difficult on everyone. And so we do have to cut everyone some slack. Uh, but I would say that with 2028 being an Olympics that are going to be held in the United States, we've got a lot of time between now and then to figure out how to how to do it in a bigger, better way so that those trials, those marathon trials could be really the single biggest day in the history of U.S. distance running. I, I really believe that if you do it right and we have time. So let's um, let's do it. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, I think any way to kind of make that more exciting and get more interest out there would be would be good for sure. Um, I want to go back to just quick when you were talking about like expanding your roster size. And I know um, I think it was your pin tweet or something I saw <clears throat> that you talk about this kind of win at all costs culture versus winning with with integrity culture. Um, And I was just curious, like, how you go about ensuring that the athletes you're recruiting fit more of this, like, win with integrity culture, like, are there specific things you look for, or um, is it just you're so confident in the culture you have established that you know it'll fit? No, there's specific things we look for, for sure. And that's why we bring the athletes in on visits, to make sure they're good people, to make sure they're uh, going to to be team players. I'll give you an example from a couple of weeks ago. We had four different athletes in here for visits at the same time, and they were all great. All, all every single one of them was wonderful. But it just so happened that the one athlete that stayed the longest, I think, I think uh, this particular athlete came in a day after the others, and so um, this this athlete was there one extra day, kind of by herself. And so she came to the track to watch our team do a workout. And she came and she watched and she was taking splits and she was cheering. She was having a great time. And then one of the athletes was uh, set to take her out to brunch. Uh, But we had another athlete about to start a workout. And this recruit 
didn't want to miss that workout. So she said to the athlete that was going to take her out to brunch, Hey, can we just go get takeout and come back to the track? And so they went and got takeout, came back to the track, and then she did it all over again, took splits, cheered the whole thing. And I said, okay, well, this is a person that uh, is, is awesome. You know, uh, this is a great human being. This is not a selfish human being. And, um, you know, another example, Wesley Kiptu, when he came to visit, it was right after NCAA indoors. It was that week after indoors. So he was tired from traveling and, you know, he's coming from sea level and look, we didn't want him to do a workout. We just wanted him to hang out, go for a couple easy runs, meet everybody, sit down with us, you know, just have fun. Uh, but Alex Masai was doing 25 by 400 on th that Wednesday when Wesley was in town and Wesley just begged us to do the workout so he could help Alex because Alex was on his own. And so I said, all right, you can do it. But, you know, I, I don't expect you to have to finish, you know, you know, this is going to be really hard. And he got through about 10 of them and he was hurting. He was hurting bad. And I said, yeah, that's, that's fine. 10's fine. And so he skipped the 11th one. And he said, let me at least do 200 meters of the next one. And it's like, well, that's not going to do anything. But I mean, you can, you know, so he did that. I mean, but he's just a great guy, man. A great teammate, just happy and fun and encouraging. And you're going to do great, man. Way to go, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we want, man. You know, I would take a person like that uh, over the most talented uh, athlete in the world if that talented athlete was – uh, a jerk, you know, uh, I don't have time for that, man. I'm too old for that. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, we need good people. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Um, and then, I mean, just what you've gone about, like building this, um, and uh, like not having a sponsor necessarily at the beginning and attracting something like that. Um, and just the success you've had, not only with like building it, but just as a coach also, like what advice would you give to to somebody younger who's who's going about and wants to get started just coaching people? From the coaching side or? or yeah, more from the uh, coaching side. Yeah, I mean, from the coaching side, you just got to coach everybody, you know, <laughs> um, you have to be willing to work with young kids, older athletes, everybody in between. You kind of learn from all those different ages and abilities, I think. And you learn that there's some things that play across the whole spectrum. And then there's some things that play more with certain groups, right? Um, I just think you got to learn. You know, you can't think you know it all. You, you don't. And you never will. <laughs> um, and the, the sooner you embrace that and the sooner you embrace the idea that, hey, this is going to be a learning process start to finish, uh, the better off you'll be. Um, now, if you want to coach pros or you want to coach at a really high level, then yeah, you got to start getting some really high level people um, because um, otherwise other high level people aren't going to trust you. <laughs> you need some credibility. But, you know, I, I think um, I, I would just, I would just make sure that I say there, there is, there is as much joy and as much uh, a sense of accomplishment in coaching at the high school level and winning a state title as there is coaching at the pro level. You know, coaching is about taking an athlete or a group of athletes and helping that athlete or those athletes achieve their goal or goals, right? And it is so, re that's the rewarding part of coaching, just being a part of that journey, just being a guide and, and watching these people cross a finish line, just elated 
and so proud of what they accomplished and you help them do that. That's the beauty of coaching. And, and that can be done at any level. So, um, you know, there can only be so many pro coaches, but, uh, but there, there is a need for great coaches at every level. And so if you want to coach, you can coach, you know, it's the same advice I would give to an athlete coming out of high school. If you want to run in college, you can run in college. Um, you may not have the ability to, to be a division one runner, but you could be a division two runner. You may not have the ability to be a division two runner, but you could be a division three runner. And um, same thing at the coaching level, you may not be cut out for this or that, but there's a place for you to coach for sure. And so um, I just think uh, get started and, and see where, see where the journey takes you. Once you were at more of that, like advanced, like I guess these last few years, are you still necessarily like reading a lot of books or research to keep learning stuff? Or is it more just, um, I guess not necessarily like trial and error, but you just kind of know your stuff so well by now, like how do you keep learning once you're at that more advanced level of coaching? I think it's still both, you know, you're, you're, you're using a lot of anecdotal evidence over years and years and years. You're looking back at the segments and, digesting and, and assessing how they went. Um, okay, this workout was too much. This workout wasn't enough, you know, and so each segment gets better and better. And, and a lot of that is just using what went well and what didn't well from, you know, the athletes that you worked with, but then, yeah, of course you're still reading articles. Of course you're still, you're, you're, you're really watching your peers and Hey, this group is doing really well. What are they doing? Right. Hey, this group kind of isn't doing well what are they doing wrong? You know, and you can learn from that as well. Um, and then you got to be real honest with yourself that, that, that whole process, that whole analyzation process only works if you're honest, you know, it only works if you're willing to say, Hey, I effed up here, you know, I screwed this up and, and I got to make it better next time. If you get stubborn and you get, you let your ego get in the way, then you won't make the necessary changes. Um, if you're just pragmatic about it, you look at it, you say, hey, this went well, this went well, this didn't go well, then you make good, smart, sound decisions, and the next segment is even better. And so, you know, I think it's a little bit of everything. And how much, like, communication is there between those other, like, pro coaches, if any? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like any profession. You're friends with some of them, some of uh -huh. them you don't really know that well. Um, I wouldn't say you talk all that much training. I mean you'd be surprised, man. It's, it's really not that different. You know, I, I, I would say that I have more talks about culture and relationship building with the, with my colleagues than I do about the nuts and bolts of, of training. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like that's been kind of the differentiating factor between like your um, group that's had this, I mean, it's still a baby, like you've said before, but it's, it's had a relatively longer life compared to a lot of these other groups that we've seen pop up and go um, that haven't had as great culture. So definitely, I feel like culture is a big piece of that. Um, our last just question we had, we do um, what we call um, daddy duos. So we just kind of rank. Um, it's kind of like a Mount Rushmore where we rank our top two of, of a certain topic. So we're going to do a snake draft thing. Um, and with you having um, written um, inside a marathon, we're going to do the daddy duos of the best running books. So oh, okay. 
We'll let you go first. Uh, no judgment if you pick your own. <laughs> oh, so I'm oh, I'm picking my favorite running book. Okay, so if I had if I was if I was stuck inside, which I am right now, and just had to yeah. read a book, uh, I would I would probably reread Running with the Buffaloes. Good choice, uh, Kyle. You can go ahead. That was going to be my pick, actually, <laughs> but uh, I would go with uh, Win at All Costs by Matt Hart. I thought that book was super interesting. Just I didn't know a lot of that background detail, and I read that book like so quickly, just figuring out everything that was going on. Yeah, um, I think that one's definitely a good, a good example of like bad cu culture. <laughs> um, I'll go, I mean, I did. I'm not just saying this because you're on here. I'll probably go with, with Inside a Marathon. I really enjoyed that one. Um, and then for my second pick, um, I'll just take the basic and go once a runner. Um, that was, I think, the first running book I read. So um, just a good story. <laughs> yeah, my next one would be uh, Endure by Alex Hutchinson. Uh, that was a good book on just, I guess, sports psychology as well as the science and just how we have these limits that we think are very concrete but they're actually very plastic and elastic and we can push ourselves more than we think okay i'll i'll go with so so in addition to the book that i wrote with scott i wrote a book recently called run like a pro even if you're slow with a, a friend of mine matt fitzgerald who's a famous running author and uh, matt fitzgerald my favorite matt fitzgerald book is called iron war it's about it is a running slash triathlon book it's about uh uh two of the most famous triathletes in the 1980s and, and 90s, uh, uh, Mark Allen and Dave Scott, and their iconic uh, race at, at Ironman Kona back in the late 80s and when they were both on top of their game. And it's just an awesome book. He, he kind of he tells you about each of these athletes as, as human beings and tells their life story so that by, by the time he gets to the race, you – Maybe you like Dave better, maybe you like Mark better, maybe you like both of them, but you're you're so <clears throat> in it and you are so um you, you feel like you're there. You feel like you're on the island watching them run this race. And he does an incredible job at describing it and the tension leading up to the race and, and during the race. And uh it's one that I don't hear talked about as often, but I would tell you guys you would like it. Iron War. Yeah, my coach in college actually like forced all of us to to read that <laughs> one year. So that's definitely a good good choice. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I actually have one of Matt's books, How Bad Do You Want It, on my shelf right now. That's in my next one to read. Good. All right. I think that's all we have. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Uh, any listeners, make sure you follow at uh, naz underscore elite. On Instagram, follow Nazalit's success as they continue to build. I'm sure you guys are going to keep growing and keep doing great things. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate it, you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good one.